Hello, and welcome to Crackle Comics episode 40. Guys, happy Halloween as it's the day before. Vince, you're from Philadelphia. Is it still referred to as Hell Night there? The night before Halloween? It's not a Philly thing. I think you're thinking of other things. That's something in Detroit, and that's something in Camden across the river. I didn't know it would have bled over. They used to burn down abandoned buildings. Oh. I I think the fire department cracked down at some point, like 10 years ago. Well, look at us learning learning things tonight. I'm Mike, joined by Daniel and Vincent. And uh, Dan, welcome back. It's been two yep. weeks. How'd the move go? It was exhausting, but uh, large uh, thank big shout out to my family and my uh, girlfriend for helping me move and get everything organized. Yeah, I'm finally kind of settled here. But yeah, this room is kind of going to be the new podcast room for me. So really excited to have that. So, will you be installing soundproofing? in the room to make it even better possibly depending on if i can move some posters around but i don't know i don't know if that's in the budget for me right now all right and also happy birthday since you had that as well oh yeah thank you appreciate that you as well <laughs> what is yes. the room actually for you don't uh, really comic books. it's the third bedroom <laughs> well you can't see it it's all my comic books yeah so all my hardcovers are sitting in bins because i gotta get another shelf for them because don't have enough space and with that, we we've all reacquainted and reassembled. And Dan, you know what book is? You know what book's weekly now? What is that? Amazing Spider-Man, which you're gonna recap us on. Oh shit! Okay, wow, what a shocker! Amazing Spider-Man going weekly. Anyways, kicking off our show this week is Amazing Spider-Man number fifty-one, written by Nick Spencer, art by Patrick Gleason, and colors by Edgar Delgado. So we open our story to Spidey facing off against a demon-like version of Silk with the help of Doctor Strange. I just want to give a huge shout out to the cover artist. I'm not sure if that's also Patrick Gleason on the cover art, but whoever it is, a great cover. Uh, Really awesome to see Spidey and Doctor Strange on that cover for sure. But Strange is able to subdue this like Silk demon to which she gets Spidey to reveal to Strange that she is possessed by Kindred. So that's kind of been the slow burn throughout this whole run. And we finally have found out who Kindred is. And we kind of get him tempting Spidey over this whole issue here. So Kindred tells Spidey that the only way for all this to end is for him to confess. And then he leaves with Cindy Moon's body. So it kind of just jumps out the, the window and leaves the Sanctum Santorum. Spider-Man requests that he go with Doctor Strange to fight Kindred, uh, since Doctor Strange is basically just like, yeah, I got to handle this because this is more of my level of an enemy. But Spider-Man's like, no, I need to go there and help as well because I have beef with this person. And yeah, so Strange gets by the hand of Vashanti to locate Kindred and his fellow Spider-People. Strange, realizing something is wrong, kicks Spider-Man out of the Sanctum, and then he goes to visit Black Cat, of all people who helps him steal the hand of Vashanti back. And we get a reference to her robbing the Sanctum in her own series. She makes a comment like, oh, I, this hasn't been the first, this, this isn't the first time I've been back to the Sanctum Santorum to steal something from this. So kind of cool little nod there. Continuity is always a good thing to see in modern day comics. So Spidey then uses the hand where he is transported to a place of nightmares, uh, one involving uh, MJ, and the next being a reference, I think, to Craven's Last Hunt. So he kind of crawls out of the grave there and he makes his way to this like monument inside the graveyard where he 
sees Kindred at a table with a bunch of skeletons, presumably of all the people that Fireman has had has had been killed over the years. So kind of like digging up like some inner demons from him. So spooky season indeed. Uh, just in time for uh, Halloween here, we get a really creepy Kindred story and uh, definitely a great villain. I think this sto- this event has been definitely worth the wait. I think Nick Spencer really delivers on, on this issue, and Patrick Gleason's art really, really excited to see that. Yeah, I think this is a pretty, pretty good issue. Very impressed. What'd you think, Mike? Yeah, I'd have to say that number one, yes, it's Patrick Gleason who did the cover, and that was the cool cover Friday this week. I don't think there was a single other cover that you could stack that one up against. Like that one had to win, even back from when we saw the previews come out for it. And uh, it looks like Patrick Gleason is drawing the bulk of this. And I think eventually he's going to trade off with Mark Bagley. I think Bagley is maybe doing the fallout. I don't, I can't remember the exact breakdown of this, but uh, yeah, this book's pretty much weekly now. We're going to be trading off between Amazing Spider-Man and then .LU issues a week on week off. And uh, the LU issues are going to be co-written by Spencer and someone else. The last one, the one last week was Spencer and Matt Rosenberg. I can't remember who the other ones are, but still good. And yeah, we're, it looks like at least in Amazing Spider-Man number 52, we got Spidey battling Kindred on the cover. So it looks like uh, Pete and Harry Osborn finally are going to come, you know, face to face and blow to blow there. And uh, we know MJ is going to be involved somewhere in this plot with uh, with Norman and Dr. Kafka. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering how this is all going to kind of boil over as we see the bodies of George Stacy. I think Ned Leeds was in there. And then obviously Gwen, we saw as Kindred's kind of bringing up everyone that Peter may or may not be responsible for their deaths, you know, kind of directly, indirectly, all sitting at that table. And then once again, heavily implied that something is going on with One More Day as we see Doctor Strange call to it, being like, Peter, did you make a deal with a demon again? No, you couldn't have done that. I'm guessing, you know, making sense would Peter Parker actually annul his marriage with a with a demon? And even we, even with the hand of uh, the Vashanti, we got a uh, we got a you know a cliff note going all the way back to Amazing Spider-Man number 42, back from the JMS, JRJR era. So Spencer's pulling out everything here, and then obviously you've pulled out the callback here of Craven's Last Hunt with Pete coming out of the grave. So, I, And I like how you know Spencer's pulling from everything here. So it'll be fun to see. And then Mark Bagley's pencils with Delgado's inks has been absolutely phenomenal. So it looks like, you know, I don't think we were, you know, Sins Rising, I think we kind of you know, cooled on. And just thinking where we might have been starting to cool off on Last Remains, it looks like Last Remains for the bulk of this 11-issue arc that it's going to be is probably going to be a fun one. So we'll we'll see how it shakes out. And uh, I'll throw it to myself here for the conclusion of another big miniseries. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but it is Three Jokers number three, Batman Three Jokers number three. This is the superstar team of Jeff Johns, Jason Fabok, and Brad Anderson. And all right, so it's the finale you've been waiting years for, as you know, this kind of had a three-year wait to even release, and now we're there. Bruce, Barbara, and Jason are all starting to break down as they're putting those clues together. Jason thinks that Bruce is hiding info and knows more than he's letting on, particularly to the Joker's name and identity. But he says, hey, if I knew it, you guys would know it too, as you know, Batman and Joker have been battling forever. 80 years these two characters have been going at it. Bruce tries to set Jason straight as they start coming to blows and they get word that the comedian has abducted Joe Chill, which prompts Batman to investigate his cell again, which is where he finds letters addressed to Bruce Wayne. They were never mailed, but all saying how he feels guilt for the murder of the Waynes 
and how he wants forgiveness. In the stack, he also finds one addressed to Batman with tickets to Monarch Theater. Obviously, we know where that location is and right outside of this crime alley. So the whole Bat family or Bat crew is uh, going to head there to get to the Joker's plan. And that plan being that the criminal Joker, the you know, not more 1940s one, is going to create the next Joker using Joe Chill as it would have the ultimate meaning to Batman, as it would always tie Joker to Bruce because Joe Chill obviously killed Batman's parents. Batgirl and Red Hood are fighting against the comedian Joker while Batman takes on the criminal, saving Joe Chill as Joker's lighter hits the acid, kind of, you know, setting under them and causing an explosion, sending them railing and barreling into the crime alley outside where Bruce confronts Joe Chill, who, you know, Joe thanks Batman for saving him. Batman says, hey, you're welcome. And just as you think that, oh, this is where Joe Chill's probably going to get killed by Joker because he's still lying out on the outside here. Criminal comes back, but oh, nope, he's shot by the comedian. Ending the night, Batman rides with the now lone Joker as Babs and Jason help with the cleanup set forward on different paths. Jason wanting to be kind of together with Barbara, but Barbara shuts him down saying, you know, keep reiterating what that kiss from the last one is a mistake. But in the truck, Batman and the Joker goes to explain that the whole plan, which was duped the others into getting Joe Chill, because that would get Batman's greatest pain as he would be perfect. But in reality, the comedian's plan is that Bruce saved the man who killed his parents, and seeing that what he's become, his pain give him, gives him relief now. So the Joker has healed his greatest wound, and now he can be his greatest pain also. He goes on to say that their plan wasn't great, an idealized Joker where you know the identity is pointless, he's supposed to be chaos. Obviously, right on that page, it's Jeff Johns writing what the Joker should be. I, I can't not take it as that, as the Joker is looking directly into the camera when he says it. There's no final twist here, he says. Just the Joker eventually putting the knife in Batman's heart. But this is kind of the point, Dan, where we realize that there is a twist. Bruce confronts Joe Chill as he passes away in the hospital. And we see, because uh, he was passing away from cancer, and we see the scenes of him heading to Alaska as he talks with Alfred back in the cave in, a, in an epilogue. Alfred asking if we'll ever know the Joker's true identity. Here's the twist. Batman tells him that he's known since the first week the two of them met. As we flash back all the way back to Joker pre-chemical bath, which flashes to him being abuses to his wife, clearly echoing what we've seen in Killing Joke and her being afraid to leave him. Bruce was working undercover and managed to cobble funds together to smuggle her out of Gotham and set her and her son up in Alaska, where they've lived ever since. And he says he's never revealed the identity because if he did, he'd know everyone would come for them, including the Joker, especially echoing that scene where the Joker was imagining having a family back in issue two. But the Joker's name has never been important. And, you know, in history, never has been. Even as Alan Moore puts it in Killing Joke, he, he prefers his origin multiple choice, which we kind of echo that here where the comedian's not even sure if he was the first Joker or not. So as Bruce looks into their window, seeing a happy mother and son, this kind of all events ended as Batman kind of pulls the ultimate joke on the Joker, knowing something that he'll never know. So, Dan, that's it. That is three Jokers. Was it worth the wait? Did you like it? I think the the feedback on this has either been you either kind of love it or you hate it. Yeah, I mean, I think just based on what you talked about and what we saw on the issue, I think I think it really delivered. And I think in the way it delivers is because it definitely goes against what I think everyone was totally expecting it to be. You know, there are so many different plot lines that this story could have taken that would have absolutely probably ruined the story. I feel like, 
you know, the whole uh, Joe Chill storyline. You know, if, if that goes the way where he actually becomes a Joker, that probably really diminishes the effect this story has. You know, if they reveal who the Joker is, again, like like you said, that diminishes who the Joker is and what his storyline stands for. Just a lot of really good decisions. I mean, also the whole thing with Jason and Barbara, you know, the whole, I, I thought that was just hilarious when he leaves the note on her. Falls. Yeah, it falls and just gets swept away. I mean, that's just like, it just shows you that, you know, he just understands, you know, Jeff Johns just knows that like he skates around everything, but still gives you that satisfaction of the storyline. And yeah, I think he understands the character and I don't know. I was very, really pleasantly surprised by this. I'm probably going to buy this in trade when it comes out or whatever format they decide to do if they decide to reprint it at all. I, I mean, this is definitely getting a art cover. Just look at the art in this. It's, it it yeah. is arguably the best Batman book of the last five years. I mean, um, if we want to talk about Jason Faybach's art for a second, to me, the, the suit he's drawing is very much the Michael Keaton suit to me, especially with the belt and the way the cow kind of corrals around. But I don't know uh, how closely you look at the art, but to me, when Batman's moving and the mannerisms actually kind of echo Keaton in the way he moves. Now, obviously, the Batman isn't murdering like Keaton did, but I just think there's very subtle nods to the Faybox art there that really kind of set it aside from anyone that you're seeing right now. And I'm happy that he had the three, you know, the two to three years to draw the book. And there was no delay on this. This came out fairly fast. It was very, very fast and done. And, you know, I we talked about it in the first issue. We liked it. We thought it was paced well. And you'd be like, you cannot like where this is going because, you know, we were duped. Originally, at the end of issue one, you're thinking, oh, Jason's going to become the Joker. Now, issue two, you're think you're left with a cliffhanger of, oh, why did Joe Chill really murder Batman's parents? And he's going to become the new Joker. Nope, mm-hmm. that didn't happen. Uh, it, it's kind of like a, like we hinted, it's Jeff Johns pulling a big joke, which I think kind of makes it secretly genius in a very weird way. I look forward to rereading the book because I think we'll definitely have differing opinions on more rereads. But I and I don't know if uh, this is a big statement. This is probably a sacrilegious statement, but I kind of prefer this to Killing Joke to, you know, if I were ever going to reread it again, because I, I don't know, I had more fun with this than I do at particular stories. I've never been a huge Killing Joke fan in the first place. But and then also at the end of the day here, this got the black label posted on it. So. This can be in continuity or not, depending on what DC you know, decides to do with it. And I, and I guess the last bit of flack for this is some people saying that why would, if Batman already knew the identity, why would he ask on the Mobius chair in Justice League who it is? I can read that as Batman, I think, just wanting to reiterate that he actually did know it and he was protecting the right people. And that the fact that he learns in the chair that there's three Jokers is what is part of that whole chaos of what the Joker represents. That was the way I read it. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you can read it different ways. And, you know, stories change over the, you know, that span of that two to three year gap. This story was originally supposed to be in Justice League. And then obviously mm-hmm. it got, you know, changed and transformed as it went on. I know, obviously, I think Jeff Johns is on his Alan Moore analog train right now. He's got this now and then Doomsday Clock. I prefer this to what I've read of Doomsday Clock. So for whatever that's worth. But you know, we'll see how we'll see how everyone takes it. Vince sending me a note: hardcover out twenty nine ninety nine out November seventeenth. So they're rushing that bad boy out right for the holiday season. So, Damn, that's a quick turnaround. Holy shit! Quick turnaround. And I I would say like if you're curious, it's worth every penny just for the art alone. Last issue might still be on the racks when the when the hardcover's out. 
I think it will. I mean, this definitely had a high print run, and you know it's going to mm -hmm. get second, third printings definitely. Mm -hmm. um, Vince, you didn't read this, but upon you know getting it spoiled for you right now, <laughs> do you have anything to say about the the reaction to the ending here, or do you not care? I mean, again, I I didn't read it. I just I don't really understand why we need this story, um, and I think based on the box, that's a that's a fine. Story. Yeah, based on Jason's art, based on knowing what Jeff Johns does, it's the same thing as Doomsday Clock. Like, you know, even even if you think it stands on its own, they're connecting it to the Killing Joke, you know, aesthetically, and you know, DC's going to try and market it as you know, the companion or follow-up. And it's like, book didn't need a sequel. Didn't need, you know, something to match it. And it's just, I don't know, like, why does this story exist? Like, did, my, my, my main question is, does Jeff Johns say anything new here about the Joker? I don't think he says anything new, but I think he at least doubles down on what the character should be than what we've seen some people try to do with it in the last kind of decade where they try to give more of an idealistic version to the character and, you know, try to make it like, you know, we just had a big budget movie trying to give an ideal version and, you know, empathy and sympathy for that character. And, you know, if you, I, I feel like if you truly know the character, you know, there's no, like, there's no compassion built in there. He's a reprehensible human being and he, he's painted that way in the book. So, and you know, there's three of them. I, I think it's Jeff, you know, doubling down on what the Joker should be and not what we keep trying to make out of it. But I mean, your own interpretation is what, you know, up to you. If we have nothing else to add, uh, Dan, Batman and Superman. Yes. So continuing on the Batman train, our next issue is Batman Superman number 13, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Max Raynor, and colors by Alejandro Sanchez. So as Batwoman and Steel make their way to the moon to rescue Superman and Batman, they are attacked by drones of Doomsday, where we get a cool splash page, or not like, I guess a half splash page of Batman, or Batwoman, excuse me, whacking Doomsday drone with a giant hammer, which looks pretty dope. And we also see kind of like her mech suit for like um, being on the moon and stuff like that. So... They continue on to find the two heroes. Uh, meanwhile, Batman is being held captive by a robot Riddler. And fun fact, when I was reading this issue, I was actually chilling um, with my sister, and I gave her the three riddles, and she got one of the three correct. So that's kind of cool. But anyway, yeah, so he's kind of held captive by this robot Riddler, which Batman is able to escape from before running into a robot Two-Face, and I guess Scarecrow as well. Also Joker, so kind of going for that as well. At the same time, Superman is facing off against a robot Darkseid and Zod when he uh, then gets into a dialogue about Lex Luthor and his motivations with a Lex Luthor bot. So that was kind of an interesting dialogue between the two of those. We suddenly see out of nowhere the Joker bot coming over and like chopping off Lex Luthor's bot's head, which is kind of cool. And Superman turns over and sees that Batman's there and Superman's like, oh, do you get like a virus to unleash with him? And Batman's like, no, I was just able just to manipulate him. And he's able, he's now going around destroying other bots. So this should buy us some time. And they're trying to figure out how to escape off this compound. So just as they do that though, Batwoman and Steel end up meeting up with them. And they are, they kind of see the robot, like pieces of all the different robots start to come combine together to create this like hybrid 
Batman Superman robot, like basically half Superman, half Batman. And uh, I guess that's why they call it Batman Superman, guys. I guess that's why they call the the series that. I don't know. Bad pun aside. Um, the other robots attack the four heroes as the hybrid robot heads towards Earth to land in Metropolis and start unleashing chaos. So that's kind of where our issue ends. Fun issue, I thought. Went pretty fast. Like I said, some of the dialogue with the robot with Lex Luthor was kind of fun. Yeah, and this this is kind of on par with the rest of this series. I feel like didn't really disappoint me a lot. Um, some of the dialogue between Batwoman and Steel I thought was pretty cool in the beginning as they're making their way towards Batman and Superman to kind of save them. But uh, yeah, kind of like I said, kind of like this more of the same stuff. So, Mike, what did you think? Yeah, you're right. It's more of the same, but. I want a Batman Superman book to be fun. And that's definitely what this is. And then, you know, you get the the fun Batman composite version of something at the end of it. So that'll be, that'll be fun to see for the next issue is, you know, this weird techno brainiac virus takes over everything. And then I, I think Max Rainer's art, by the way, was better in this issue than the last one. I think uh, this is a much better showing here. And then, you know, fun v- versions of uh, Batman villains as robots is, is pretty fun, but I got nothing else really other than it was a fun issue. You know, it's another issue of Bat- Superman, Batman, or Batman, Superman, whatever you want to call it these days. Yes. Number 1029, more Batman, and there's actually even more Batman after this because that's all DC publishes. Pete Tomasi, as usual on this title, art by Kenneth Rockfort, and I'll just say without too much further comment that it's interesting that DC decided to hire him for this issue and then kept him on after it was solicited. So this issue, it's kind, it's another kind of standalone issue, um, similar to the last one, which had to be like horse cut, like the guy on a horse cutting off people's heads. So a new character, the Mirror, has appeared in the aftermath of Joker War, and he has like this design where he's got this like shiny mirror-like, you know, costume exterior mask. The public is sick of masks, and even though he wears a mask, he has this like twisted logic where it's like it's like i'm not wearing a mask i'm reflecting who we really are who everyone really is it's kind of derpy bruce is moving he's packing up some of his things because he's broke there's this moment where he's like looking at photos of alfred and it's supposed to be emotional i didn't think it was that amazingly written i saw some people sharing around online i don't remember if they were criticizing it or 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 commending it actually though but I thought it was just fine. And again, I hate that status quo, so whatever. But now that he's broke and Joker War is over and everything like that, we can return to the original, very loose premise of Tomasi's run, which was supposed to be kind of exploring the Black Casebook. He goes out to do some patrolling first. And actually, the way it's written is kind of weird. It's kind of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to distract my mind and go beat up some thugs. Like, People joke about that with Batman, but it's like kind of written here for the, like the intro. And he has, there are some people escaping because they did some robbery or something. He hijacks their car and then starts driving the car while the goons are still in the car. And they're like, well, let's just shoot him. And so he's in the car in the driver's seat and like two of these guys with handguns shoot him multiple times in the back of, basically in the back of the seat like just through the headrest into his cowl and it does nothing in fact i think the bullets may be implied to bounce back into them i don't like that but then it gets worse when 
I guess with the headrest destroyed, he like puts his head backwards. And that stupid thing that Scott Snyder introduced in All-Star Batman, where the ears on his cowl can shoot out as projectiles, he does that and shoots his ears into them to neutralize them and then stops the car. And then he picked, and then there's like a comedic scene where he picks his ears out of their like clothes and slots them back into the cowl. And I just hate all of that. I hate the fact that his cowl is bulletproof at point blank range to multiple handgun bullets. And then that he shoots his ears. But then we get some nice Bruce Wayne time. He's on a yacht because this whole, this, uh, this one GCPD officer is running for mayor. And so Bruce is kind of trying to check in on him. So it's nice to see some Bruce, you know, out of costume sometimes. And then Nightwing shows up and then that kind of re-solidifies the, uh, the mayor candidate's anti, you know, mask policy. And then the big twist at the end is that Damien has stolen the black casebook. So Damien's going to be back in this, uh, title again. I thought this was fine. I I think Rock Report's weird, shiny style, it's very unique. I feel like people probably first noticed him on some like weird like Top Cow stuff, like he did a Velocity series, I think with Ron Mars. And then obviously he did Red Hood and the Outlaws and, and a lot of Superman stuff, which I didn't think fit him as well. But I don't really think Batman is a great fit for his style. And especially this issue, the mirror character, I don't know if I don't know if Rockford designed that character, who knows, but that character really fits his style because it's very like a shiny character, almost like a metallic, but also like a liquid kind of property to his appearance. But he's only on a couple pages. He doesn't do anything. He's not, he's never like moving or in action. And the rest of the story doesn't really play to Rockford's strengths. But I mean, it's another, you know, adequate Detective Comics history from Pete Tomasi, and, and that's fine, and that's kind of what I want from this title. And then over in Batgirl, which is our final Batman-related book of the week. Wow, this, the rundown really was all Batman kind of this week. But this is Batgirl number 50, Cecil Castellucci, Emmanuel Lubacchino, and then Wade Von Grabadger, Mitch Gray, Scott Hanna. This is the final issue of Batgirl, as it loudly says on the cover with a giant circle uh, telling you right in the face, and like the rest of these post-Joker War titles, it features our main character picking up the pieces and putting their life back together as we transition into a new status quo. And then I want to applaud uh, Castellucci here by directly tying the events of the Fallout into Batman 101, showing Bruce tell the Batfam that they're now on a budget and to spend their funds wisely. Um, and I also say that Bruce is not completely broke. He's no longer a billionaire, but he's still a millionaire. He's getting like a stipend or like a yearly severance pretty much from Wayne Industries at this point. He's just no longer within the company or on the board. They'll keep him around as like a figurehead. So also kind of a cool nod to continuity is Barbara is now working as an aide for a Gotham City representative. Um, her name is Alejo. I, can't, I don't know what her first name is, but there was a time where, believe it or not, Barbara was in fact a congresswoman. So to see her transitioning more into politics again is kind of a cool to see. We see her in gym. Jim Gordon, her father, Barry, uh, their, his son, James Jr., who apparently died in this event. And Jim thinks that Batgirl's responsible. And uh, Jim's, like, very, like, cynical and, like, down now. He's definitely not the Jim Gordon that I'm used to reading. So that's kind of a jarring thing at first. And though the meat here, though, is that Barbara wants to do more, uh, not just in costume, but out of costume, as Gotham is reeling from these events. So she makes a case for more acts in social justice and helping on any level possible and even manages to get Bruce to donate to more charities and not 
and fundraisers that aren't just like you know the top four main ones but very specific ones that are like are you know are hurt the most need the most help so he she gets into position funds there barbara also basically casts uh dick grayson out saying that they're strictly on a business relationship at this point as she doesn't really know him as she's still kind of reeling from the fight she had to do against him i guess in joker war which once again we didn't read joker war where i'm just i'm taking the cliff notes that where, where they give me but uh, she manages to get Aleo and her father to turn a new perspective and gain the, uh, their optimism back as she goes to look to push more for more uh, social reform in Gotham, hinting that Barbara might be running for office soon. Um, and then, really, I like the art here, too. It reminds me a lot of Yannick Paquette, who was one of my favorite Batman artists uh, when drawing the first run of Batman Inc. I think this is pretty strong, and I'm wondering when we will see Batgirl again, obviously, because this is the final issue. Uh, in this, by the way, she she basically commits to having a relationship with her with her new boyfriend jason uh it's not jason todd i can't remember the guy's name he was from batman eternal though um so that's a, another status quo change of them fully committing to having a relationship instead of kind of an on off kind of thing but this run seemed pretty good the art's pretty good maybe i'll dive some back issues or try to track down the trades through to the rest of the run because i think right now i am getting the feeling that i overlooked this it was a pretty strong issue for a finale and i'm wondering when we we see Batgirl uh, repositioned into this. But that's the end of Batman for the show. So, Dan, are you ready for Department of Truth? Yes, I am. I'm ready for Department of Truth, and I'm ready for the end of this series because this is where I jump off the boat. Um, I know my co-hosts have also jumped off the boat an issue ago, but yeah, anyways, our next issue... Sorry, that's a really somber way to start this recap, but our next issue is Department of Truth number two, written by James Tynan, with art by Martin Simmons. The issue opens to a boy named Cole. I believe this is the same person from the first issue, who is actually being questioned about a star-faced man with a Dracula cape. And then we see some creepy figure, creepy figure guy, like, eating a baby, like, with a fork and knife. So I'm like, what the hell's going on here? We then pan to a kitchen where a man named Maddie is talking with his husband, which is Cole and about conspiracy theories about Dick Cheney being a lizard, and talking about how, I guess, in one press conference, someone saw his eyes close, like, vertically rather than horizontally, which I thought was weird. Next, Cole meets up with all of the Department of Truth um, people. He meets with a rep who takes him out for pancakes and describes the whole setup of the Department of Truth. They then get into a discussion about child abuse conspiracy theories and the star-faced man that we saw in the flashback in Cole's past. Our characters then go to the actual Department of Truth now to meet up with a bunch of people. One of the guy's names, I think, I don't know if his real name is this or if he's just nicknamed Hunky, and he actually monitors all the TV to kind of control all the like media and like stuff like that to, to make sure it's going out correctly and nothing's being construed from, I guess, the Department of Truth or whatever. We then meet some more people from this group where... You know, they kind of talk about their jobs, and that's where I get bored and decide to not read this book anymore. Uh, so that's actually in my recap. So, yeah, this book really hooked me in with the premise. And it's a shame because I think the premise is really cool when you think about it. But this issue just got really too off the rails for me. Just a lot of weird stuff going on here. And I just feel like it just it doesn't it's not grabbing me. You know, I'm not really into this type of stuff, like, you know, very far fetched, like very ethereal stuff going on. I think like the whole like idea of like exploring conspiracy theories and having Lee Harvey Oswald as like the leader of the Department of Truth 
thought that was a really cool premise. And from what I've read in this issue, now he could have appeared later in the issue. I can't remember if I saw him in a panel or whatever, but we don't really see him in this issue. He kind of disappears. And like, I feel like that's the thread that kind of hooked me into the first issue and kept me wanting to come back and watch it again or read it again. So yeah, it's going to be a no for me, dog. Uh, I'm out. Um, I'm sorry about the Department of Truth. Thought it was a good idea, but yeah, just not uh, executed well. And I know my co-host Mike's talked about this earlier. He does like Martin Simmons' art. For some reason, I just cannot get into this art style. It's not like it's bad. I just can't get into it. I'm not really a big fan of it. So, I have a one question though. What? And that is, you, you say you're not into uh, conspiracy theories, but don't you believe the moon landing's faked? Mm, maybe. I'm not gonna not gonna confirm nor deny it on this podcast. All right, you can plead the fifth on that one, but the 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 the, pe- the, the you know the plot that it is now dangled there in front of you, so you can pick that up whenever you want to want to do that one again. If there is but, a cover. Is there is there if there is a cover for the Department of Truth that has the moon landing on it, I will come back and read that issue. Okay, you heard. Can you answer this question though? Is the Earth flat? No. Okay. All right. So you're still all right. You're you're only partially insane. Okay. Yes. Put on a shirt. <laughs> all right. With with your face on it. Yes. Getting into a mortal Hulk. <laughs> Al Ewing and Joe Bennett. It's more body horror and more twists as we see that the leader actually consumed Brian Banner, going full xenomorph here in the scenes and the art, and using that to his advantage when fighting the Devil Hulk as he emerges. Uh, as uh you know getting into the hulk psyche uh merging as uh brian banner uh kind of throwing him into a tailspin opening that door for the leader to kill the devil hulk and take bruce to hell this leaves joe and child hulk stranded as uh hulk didn't act he kind of froze up in fear and in reality the hulk is chained up by gamma flight unable to go anywhere well which leaves just joe fix it to save the day and then we see bruce inside uh devil hulk back in hell strung up being consumed by more body horror uh kind of jacob's ladder almost uh jacob's ladder mixed with uh, event horizon scenery at this point in the book uh saying that he thinks the hulk is dead as his eyes are being gouged out by you know very very sharp objects and just more horror so this went south pretty fast in terms of thinking that uh bruce and company were gonna win as uh, we had the the really crazy awesome moment of devil hulk emerging and then very quickly taken off the board. And I think there's a really good job of Ewing showing that the leader is not as dumb as we thought back in the last issue. He's kind of prepared for everything. And this is issue 39. Uh, we're told that 50 is the end of it. So what, uh, around 11 more to go? So this is pretty fun. And can still continues to be uh, one of the best books at Marvel. And uh, this is now Joe Bennett's magnum opus in terms of uh, the art here. Arguably, this is this one's up there as a memorable one, especially for the body horror. But Vince, take us for Strange Academy. Yes, Strange Academy number four, Scotty Young and Bertha Ramos. So the creepy Groot-looking dudes that I talked about that ended the final issue, they were a tease. They're called the Hollow, and they're kind of like evil swamp thing, but concerned with the abuse of magic. Then back to the kids and Desi, who's like the one who's actually native to the New Orleans area um, and has like a voodoo background. turns out she's like secretly a zombie or dead or maybe super old. 
And this one character is kind of figuring it out and keeps bugging her about it and figures out that Desi is able to hide that by wearing a necklace. And so this girl rips off her necklace and is like, truth is good. You've got to show your truth. And it's like, you know, she the, this character doesn't understand, you know, that concept where, you know, you're, it's not it's not other people's responsibility to like force others truth you know out in public and everything like that so it's kind of like an outing scene you know like you know you can read it in a couple ways up for interpretation and then the the kids are playing tag at, through the school but they're also going through magical doors so they keep going in different areas and emily jumps through one of these doors and she suddenly starts falling from the sky in new york city before you see a web and it's Umberto Ramos drawing Spider-Man, and as someone who likes his Spider-Man, that was pretty exciting. It's just for one page, though. They go through Asgard, they go through Weird World. Then Emily runs across a mysterious cat beast. It's just like a black cat, and it has wings and looks weird and talks. And the, the, the cat beast leads her to Doctor Strange's basement, where someone behind a door is being held captive. And so she's kind of intrigued, and she's like, well, maybe... Even you know, maybe Doctor Strange isn't totally all right guy, but she has to escape before Strange and crap. I forget the dog's name. Strange is a ghost dog. I want to say Boots or something. Before Strange finds her, so I assume she'll come back to that. Back to the school, Doyle, who is Dormammu's son, he has been screwing up in the library. He dropped a bunch of books, and then he's trying to put them away. He accidentally let a giant demon out of a book that Doctor Strange had encountered. I did double check whether this was loosely referencing an actual Strange story. Given the his, given how this book has handled things so far, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a Jason Aaron story or a Donny Cates story, or you know, in that run. But I'm not. I can't say for certain. I didn't. I didn't check. And then one of the kids gets lost right in the middle of the hollow. So he's not going to have a good time. This was another fun issue. It, it does a great balancing act of, you know, juggling the cast, you know, developing certain members when, when it needs to. There's some intriguing teases here. There's some nice, you know, themes that you'd expect in a teen superhero book. And there's some funny Easter eggs like the Spider-Man page going through Weird World. And the, the, the tag scenes where they're going through different realms allows uh, Umberto Ramos to show a little bit of versatility there's like slightly different styles, you know, when they go to Weird World versus when they go to, I forget the other place where she finds a cat beast. Pretty good issue. I, I'm really enjoying this series. Over in Wonder Woman number 765, Mariko Tamaki and Steve Pugh. Steve Pugh is stuck around. Hey, another fun issue also here. It seems like this series is really going to keep with the fun buddy cop duo of Diana and Max tracking down the stolen tech on the black market. And here it takes them to Zandia. They discover that Count Vertigo is buying the those materials to help end his war in the, his homeland. And then we get, you know, we get a fun bar fight scene of the two of them trying to learn the information. Of course, Max is just using his mind powers while uh, Wonder Woman is having to fight in a kind of brute force scenario all in the bar. And then we see the invisible jet get shot down. And in doing so, uh, Diana is now blind and must kind of rely on Max Lord to guide her in the, the forest in the next issue. So this is going to be fun uh, as the whole series has been like, can you trust Max Lord? So kind of an ultimate scenario with that here. And, you know, we're getting more teases of infinite crisis here where Superman was asking if he could help, but uh, Diana doesn't want to, as she was uh, seeing visions of him being turned by Max Lord, which is obviously something that happened from infinite crisis. But 
this continues to be fun. Steve Hughes art, the last two issues have been pretty, I mean, obviously much stronger on this run. Uh, this time he gets to draw Wonder Woman more properly in costume as the last issue. They were kind of all at the beach in different outfits. But this is good stuff. Uh, I'm staying with it. What do you guys think? It, also, like somehow I think this is the first book all three of us read this week, which is very weird. Yeah, it's a weird week. I, uh, I didn't read a ton myself personally. Um, we'll see. I think next week is very heavy. Yeah, I mean, this was good. I, it's similar fun issue as last one where it's like, you know, it's continuing the plot lines, it's continuing the relationship between Diana and Max, but it also kind of works as a standalone issue, um, which is kind of my preference for most runs. We, we get another Infinite Crisis reference here, which is interesting. There's some cool villain cameos here. I really hate this version of Count Vertigo, though. Yeah, it's it's not the best design. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I like, like you said, just kind of echoing what you said. I mean, I, I think I'm sticking around for this. Yeah, I kind of had to go through that that little rough patch there with the artist, and but I think this is much better. Yeah, I do like the dynamic between Diana and Max. I think that's pretty cool. And like I said, I mean, this this is pretty easy for me to follow because I don't know a lot about this character. Jesus Christ! <laughs> kind of throwing in. I think I think next issue is. Next issue is Pew and maybe the next one to finish out this, you know, chunk. Um, but then the, the next artist is Rafa Sandoval. He's not a huge name, but he did some some of Josh Williamson's flash run. And I think in, in recent years, his art's pretty cool looking. So we'll see how yeah. he fits on. That's a, name I, that's a name I know and like, so that'll be interesting. But yeah. hey, uh, you only had one X-Men book this week. Previously on X-Men. Yes, uh, only one came out, Ten of Swords, Stasis. This is written by Teeny Howard and Jonathan Hickman with art by Pepe Larraz and Mahmoud Azwar. It's part 11 of 22, so this is officially the halfway point, and it's a one-shot in the middle of the crossover. It starts out with several pages of Saturnine and other world politics stuff that I don't care about, and I'm sure it'll connect at some point, but I don't even know if it connects in this crossover. Is probably for the next one or something, or the status quo after this. I didn't care about that. Then I guess I forget where the count was at the end of last week because I thought they were missing at, at least two, maybe three swords. But I guess maybe at the maybe I said that last week before Apocalypse grabbed his. And then there's uh I don't even remember his stupid name. The one very like kind of obscure Wolverine villain from the Wolverine Origins run. He has, and, and I don't understand it. I feel like he has two swords that he's bringing. And I don't know if he counts as one individual, but counts as two swords. I don't really know. But all the after they figured it out. They're all there. All the swords are ready. And then before I get back to that, over on in the other side of the tournament, the Araco folks, instead of Rock Slide's corpse sculpted into like a little arrangement thing, which is what the X-Men did, they literally just set up their like summoning circle for the swords just about of like literal, just old rotting corpses. It's actually a surprisingly gruesome panel. I mean, it's not like there's blood spilling out on gore, but just the, just the visuals of it, surprisingly gruesome for an X-Men book. And they have to go recruit more allies and some of them have to find their swords. So we have basically the first appearance of five characters here. So you got to make sure you slab this issue. The only one that I'll really point out is that one of them 
and he has a weird name. It's like Pogger or something. He is a giant crocodile with six arms. He speaks in rhymes and he's really likes gems. It's kind of, he's, he's kind of funny for his like two lines. And then the X-Men teleport through and they show up and Saturnine basically gives them hotel rooms and in their hotel rooms on their nightstands, they all get tarot cards. And Apocalypse is very mad about his because, well, and, and there's little jokes for all of them, like Magic's tarot card. I don't, you know, I don't know anything about tarot. Hers is whatever. And the, the artwork on the card is like her being a badass. And she's like, nice. And then Cables is like the fool. So he's like, damn it. And Apocalypse is really upset about his. And we don't see it at first. And he smashes it up. He goes to argue with Saturnine. And then she uses her magic to recreate it. And it's the lovers. And it's him embracing his wife. And then the big twist at the end is that on the Araco side, it turns out Apocalypse's wife is alive and she's entering the tournament on the other side. So things are heating up and I'm maybe the next issue. Actually, the next issue is an X-Men issue. So it's probably going to be a lot of, it's probably going to be more set up garbage, um, but it, it may start the actual tournament stuff, which I still don't 100% understand exactly what's going to happen. Because in this issue, they also emphasize that, I mean, I think they're all going to fight. I mean, that makes sense. But they also say there's like a throwaway, there's like a minor line where it's like the swords are not necessarily literally to fight. They, they were also used as keys to enter the tournament. So we'll see what happens next. But that actually is our uh, last regular issue this week. That's right. Dan, are you ready for the retro? Yes, I'm always ready. The long-awaited retro issue. I've avoided this book for two weeks, and now the time has come for me to review Black Condor number one, written by Brian Augustine with art by Rags Morales. Our story opens to a man named Ryan talking with his grandfather about how he will be imbued with great power. So we see him kind of go into like this, like machine or something, and then. Uh, we then pan to a cool splash page of our main character flying and pondering how he will destroy his grandfather's society. So we do get a little bit of a jump in time here, and we don't really get a lot of explanation as to why the sudden shift in motivations for our main character. But um, that's kind of interesting. You know, obviously, we'll see how this turns out later on. Maybe, maybe not. Meanwhile, we see a group of thieves that are driving away after stealing about 200 grand when their car goes off the road and crashes. I guess in terms of setting, uh, the Condor is kind of flying around Jersey, and I believe these criminals are driving from Philadelphia. So kind of some local ties to this issue, which is always cool to see. So a ranger comes along, and he helps the criminals you know, kind of get their car starting when he actually sees the hostage that they have in the back seat, and he gets taken hostage as well. So... That's kind of our plot line here. So up in the sky, Condor hears some hikers who are lost and helps them out. And he heads back to like the ranger office where he runs into this woman, Eileen. And he's also looking for his friend, Ned, who is also a fellow ranger, who is actually the ranger who was kidnapped by these criminals. So Condor hears Ned, because I guess he has like super hearing or whatever. And it goes off to save him, where we see the criminals bickering with each other. And one, the leader actually shoots one of them and like kills him. So we don't really see like an actual death scene. We just kind of see the gun and like the blaring of the gun away. So that's kind of cool. 
Yeah, so Condor is able to locate Ned and the hostage and stop the criminal by making his gun explode with his mind, which is kind of interesting. That's a power I was not expecting him to have. As the criminals are taken to jail, Ned, Eileen, and Condor talk about how this skirmish has made Black Condor like visible to the public now, which is, I guess, what Condor has been trying to avoid because of his grandfather. And we then pan over to Ryan's grandfather's work building, where we find out that his grandfather has now discovered where his grandson is. And he's now like, we need to go after him. We need to find him. Uh, we need to bring him back to us. So for our first issue, I thought this was pretty solid. Really cool to see ties, obviously, to the local area, like I mentioned earlier. I think this, like, from what I've seen in this first issue, I feel like it kind of sets the stage for a more dramatic confrontation with the grandfather i'm assuming that's kind of like the build of the first story arc or whatever will i ever be able to find out probably not because i doubt this is collected uh, one of our co-hosts is actually i believe custom binding this series so i don't know if he wants to talk more about that but in terms of an issue i thought this was pretty solid um i enjoyed it you know pretty easy premise to follow i don't know it's just it's an obscure i guess hero plucked from dc history so but other than that i I thought it was okay what'd you guys think i'll let vince start because he's got more to say than i do i think it's interesting to see the early work of rides morales i feel like this might be like at least major companies i think this is the first thing he ever did can't think of anything earlier and, and i and i also was just looking at his wikipedia page although that's not super helpful to the person who actually read this because i don't I don't imagine that Dan's read much of his other work that would be, you know, the major things would be Hawkman, Identity Crisis, and Action Comics with Grant Morrison, and then a couple other obscure, more obscure things. His art, you know, you can tell this is early on. It's a lot more cartoonish. I think actually his artwork develops as the series goes on. So I actually think in terms of the art, this issue is not super exciting start. And I also kind of forgot what happened in the first issue because I was also disappointed that this that like the like the full status quo for this series is not really fully introduced here because most of the series he is patrolling around philadelphia and so that's one of the major points of bias and interest for me in this title is a you know a character in philly and it's interesting because well i'll get i'll get to this in a second so yeah and then and then i'll just say that i mean i i mean i think this is kind of a weak Number one, to be honest, kind of for some of the points that I just said, as far as the art and the status quo is not really clear here. It's not fully developed, um, but it's fine. I mean, it, it feels like a like an early 90s slash mid 90s kind of middle of the line DC book. Um, and then I, and then just a couple history notes additionally. So Black Condor is originally a quality comics character, which was one of the publishers that DC either merged with or bought through the years. Um, and they're heavy hitters during the golden age, which was kind of their peak. Um, I think DC, they, they went defunct and DC absorbed some of their stuff um, in, I think, 1955. Uh, so their heavy hitters were Plastic Man and Blackhawk. And then other characters that are quality comics that people may or may not associate with them or, or know the backstory. Um, a lot of them, DC incorporates under the concept of the Freedom Fighters team. Or, or you'll hear about EarthX, like the uh, CW-verse, I think, had an EarthX crossover. But like Uncle Sam, The Human Bomb, Kid Eternity, which Grant Morrison did a reinvention of, The Phantom Lady, 
Quicksilver, which was then renamed, you know, Max Mercury due to, you know, Marvel shenanigans, who Flash fans will know. And then they have, they, you know, besides, you know, those things, they also had some historical firsts. The clock is considered the first masked hero in comics. And then Doll Man was the first shrinking hero ahead of both the Adam and Ant-Man. And then the, the three that I left out is obviously Black Condor. So in the 90s, DC attempted legacy versions of a couple of these characters. Black Condor, they did the Ray, which lasted longer and also was set in Philly. And then Firebrand, which was very short, and that's the most forgettable one. I mean, the other two, the Ray had a, had a nice long run with Christopher Priest involved with Joe Quesada drawing the miniseries, Howard Porter doing the ongoing, and lasted quite a while, so so there was a lot of character development. This one, you have Rags and Morales, um, and then Firebrand, no one, no one remembers or cares. Yeah, and uh, not to say no one will remember this, but I think this definitely goes as the least memorable of uh, books that we'll remember from the retro segment. Uh, I don't know that. I, yeah, I don't agree with that. I'd have to look at the list. <laughs> there are some pretty crappy ones. I don't yeah, think... like you're gonna remember the bad ones, like yeah. it's so middling that it's gonna fall right in the middle of the stack, and you'll be like, "Oh, we read that." Yeah. Other than that, though, it is fun seeing early Rags Morales art. Uh, it is more cartoony, like you said. Um, I I think he draws a great Superman though. Uh, looking at Identity uh, Identity Crisis, the Superman's really good there, and you can start seeing some of the the form work that he would lay the groundwork for that there. But it, yeah, it's a fine number one. I, it's it, it is a DC comic book from 1992. I don't explicitly have a lot to say on it. I, I enjoy the character when he shows up in Starman, though. Yeah, this this character, yeah, he he's one of the kind of obscure characters that show up in Starman. And then also, I think this series only lasted 12 issues, and then he joins the even more obscure title, or I don't know which one's more obscure. He joins Primal Force, uh, that team, which also had Red Tornado on it. And, and then I feel like he dies in Infinite Crisis or something, or maybe he just kind of disappeared. No, he died. This character dies in Infinite Crisis number one. Yeah, say if anyone's going to die, might as well be Black Condor. I mean, no one will remember the Black Condor. But that's our show of the regular rundown. Guys, time for picks of the week. Who's going first? Me? No, I usually yeah. give it to Strange yeah, yeah. Cat. Strange Academy again. I feel like this is three times in a row now. But I only read like five books this week. <laughs> I know. I got to go three Jokers, number three. Yeah, we're, I'm going to go ahead and lock it in. Three Jokers was mine too. So two of the three issues took took pick of the week. You should be embarrassed. You <laughs> didn't read it. <laughs> How do you know? That, that's why I didn't read it. Go buy the $30 hardcover in three weeks. Pass. He'll buy. He'll buy the trick. Yeah, yeah. For this week, uh, Vince, you mentioned it last week, but uh, yes, this is our final show before the election, so we'll we'll be in a brave new world possibly uh, by next next Friday <laughs> if we find out the results by then. So uh, if you're not registered, uh, I mean, you should be by now. Make sure to go out and vote on Tuesday, and uh, wear a mask when you go to bed. And Dan can finally say who he's been trying to say there. Was that was Brave New World a reference to the famous novel by Al? No. I think it's Alfred Huxley or something. Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley. That's right. No, Read it's it. just. I hope it. I hope the world stops being on fire. 
That'd be nice. Well, it's going to be on fire. Uh, yeah. All right, that's it. All right. Peace. That's all. That's all we got for this week. Just make sure to vote on Tuesday. Make make a change in your life, and this is the time to do it. Be safe out there. See ya. Have a good one. Goodbye. Thank you.